and uh, welcome from me. My name is Peter Comont. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at that passage. Let's pray before we do. Lord, uh, we ask every time we open your word because we need to, that you will help us to understand it. That uh, you will clarify things in our minds, that you will stir our hearts, that you will open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see you and the truth about you. We pray that you would give us willingness in our hearts so that we would respond. And we pray, Lord, that uh, through uh, what we do in the next um, little while, reading your word and thinking about it and seeking to respond, you will change us and change us forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Aquilinus was feeling wobbly. He'd never felt so exposed, so threatened, so isolated in his life. In many respects, the city felt like home to him. He had been born there. His earliest memories were of his merchant father's comfortable home. Mixing with the elite of the city had been the norm. His mother was one from one of the great families. True, there had been trouble. Their faith was treated with great suspicion. And through his teenage years, they'd been forced to live away from Rome in a couple of the great ports of the empire. But he still felt safe and secure and loved. And frankly, he loved the rich mixture of people who gathered weekly in his home to worship. Finally, they had returned to Rome, to their old church. I fear it's not going to work. I've got a pretty loud voice anyway, so I shouldn't worry too much. Finally, they'd returned to Rome, to their old church, now much bigger, more divided, actually, than he remembered. He began studying Roman law and mixing with young, boisterous, non-Christian Romans. And a year ago, his parents had actually left the city, moved back to one of those port cities, Ephesus. And so now he was alone. His new friends were exciting, vibrant, attractive, but not a little threatening as well. Frankly, his church was becoming a bit of a liability. In the delicate world of Roman society, they were clumsy, outspoken, naive, frankly, embarrassing. And he bore the brunt of it. I get that your father's a Jew, they would say, but why do you have to join that little sect called the, the Christianoi, the Christians? You'll never get anywhere in your legal career, said another. Everyone will know that you hold morally and politically repugnant views. You associate with slaves apart from anything else. That alone makes you more or less an insurrectionist in the empire. Remember how your family was banished, Aquilinus? Be in no doubt, trouble is brewing, and this time it is going to be worse. 
Keep your head down. Go and worship in that synagogue that your dad used to go for before he went uh, go to before he went all weird. Because that has protected status. You worship in the same God. If you keep going to that coven of ne'er-do-wells and atheists, because that's what they are, that they call church, there's no telling what's going to happen to you. Emperor Nero, right now, is flailing around. His bold new Neronomics program is in tatters. He's just executed his chancellor, not sacked him. The Senate is plotting to overthrow him. It's going to end badly. And when there is chaos, people look for scapegoats and lynch them. Don't throw your life away. No wonder Aquilinus was feeling wobbly. And just today, he got a letter from his parents. In fact, two letters. One was to be read to the whole church. It began, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But the other one said this to our dear son, Aquilinus. We know the pressure you're under. We urge you to read our letter to the church yourself and reflect on it deeply. These are dark days, but we have a glorious saviour. Your loving mum and dad, Priscilla and Aquila. Well, we don't know whether Priscilla and Aquila, who are sort of um, a famous power couple in the New Testament, we don't know whether they actually wrote this letter to the Hebrews. It's probably not. But it was written by someone like them. Someone who had been through a lot. Someone who knew that the next generation would face a worse situation still. And so... so. Um, just as Hebrew served as a, as a call to my generation, frankly, who grew up in, uh, in a world which was increasingly confident in its rebellion against Britain's Christian roots. So it serves as a call to generation after generation, including this one. Now we're living in a, in a world not so much rebelling against the moral certainties of the past, but actually living with its own particular moral certainty rather like the Roman Empire a moral certainty that was absolutely confident that those Christians in certain ways at least are repugnant and immoral and should be suppressed and uh, we have been looking at Hebrews for a number of weeks now but this passage before us is perhaps the most blunt 5.11, we have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you're no longer trying to understand, he says. You know, long sermons are not for you, are they? You want little little pep talks. Christian books are out. Snappy online articles is all you want. Serious Bible reading is gone. A thought for the day over a bowl of cereal is all that you uh, uh, you can cope with. No, these are, but these are not the words of a sort of crabby old teacher frustrated with his... With, with his um, pupils. This is from someone who cares deeply about that church in Rome, who is deeply concerned about the way things are going and wants to save them from eternal misery. So, slightly abrupt though it may be, we need to listen to it carefully. 
Verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. He says, if you're a baby in Christ, of course you need milk, simple, digestible, slightly bland nutrition that gets you started. But babies must grow up. He's saying anyone who lives on milk, still being uh, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. It's not totally clear what that phrase "teaching about righteousness" is uh, uh, means. Some have suggested, and they are almost certainly wrong, that it was some sort of hidden mystery. That is not what's going on there. Much more likely, in fact, the next verse explains it perfectly clearly. It's those who have have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil by um, a constant use. It's learning in a difficult and complex world, then, how to live a life that is glorifying for Jesus. And that's what he's talking about, I think. And, and people must go on from their first baby steps to being able to confidently live in a complex, difficult, challenging world, he's saying. That's the world we live in. That's the lives that we increasingly have to embrace once we were nurtured and cared for and looked after. But it doesn't happen forever. And we must go on then from um, simple milk to something that provides us with a bit of more nutrition in a challenging world. Let us move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. What exactly those foundational uh, elementary teachings are is not perhaps as clear as we might hope. It's certainly about Christ. Did you see that? The, the fundamental teachings about Christ. But then the, 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 the subsequent phrases in his teaching um, seem a little bit weird, to be honest. To be honest. Why are his instructions about cleansing rites, as he puts it there, foundational? If you know the New Testament you will not find instruction about cleansing rites as being in a sort of basic teaching of, of, uh, of new Christians. But perhaps if we dig a little bit, bit, bit um, deeper, we, need, we can find out. So first, the first thing that we need to do then is understand the foundations that he's talking about. We need to be mature, he's saying. We need, first of all, though, good foundations. Well, those foundations seem, in fact, to be three pairs of um, uh, truths that he talks about. The first two, repentance from acts to death uh, uh, that lead to death and faith in God. 
That one is probably reasonable, that pair is probably reasonably straightforward. It is absolutely foundational to our lives that we need to repent. The Bible everywhere teaches. Actually, the people are only moving in two directions, only possible for them to be moving in two directions. One is away from Jesus. No matter how much we may nod in his direction and say some nice things about him, we know that fundamentally we are walking away from him. And here he's saying, that is a pathway to death. That is a pathway to eternal separation from God. And the call everywhere throughout the Bible, the fundamental call of Jesus and of God is repent, turn around from that direction of life and start walking towards Jesus. Acts that lead to death and faith in God. When we start walking towards Jesus, in fact, that is not now I'm starting to build up a whole lot of things that I do that I can present to God and say, look at all these wonderful things to do. I deserve to be in heaven. It is that we turn and start to follow Jesus and trust him. None of the things that we do as we follow him will earn us brownie points in heaven. All we can do is trust Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and move forward. The first fundamental foundation then is that repentance and faith, it gets called in various places in the Bible, turning towards Jesus and trusting him. If that's not something you have yet done, then no matter how good your life is, no matter how impressive you look to other people, no matter, no, no, no matter how impressive you think you're going to look towards God, he will not be impressed. Because he will know the direction of your life. And he will know whether you have put your trust in him or not. That is the first of the foundations. Then the more weird one, cleansing rites and the laying on of hands. Probably we should understand it in this way. The word cleansing, translated cleansing rites, is literally baptisms, plural. Ancient uh, interpreters used to suggest that it was just baptism, but why baptism? that was a foundational teaching. But why baptisms plural? Probably because, in fact, there are multiple baptisms in the New Testament and within Jewish culture that is the, 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 the main recipients of this letter. Within the New Testament, for instance, we see the baptism of John. John the Baptist was baptizing people. But we're told that was just a baptism of repentance. It wasn't the full thing. It wasn't the final thing. It wasn't the real thing. It was anticipatory. It symbolized something, but it was not the completeness. Within Jewish circles, there were multiple other baptisms, multiple other uh, cleansing rites. Some for people to enter Judaism itself, some just for regular ritual washing. The, the, the synagogues in those days, and in fact, I think right up to today, 
have, have a, well, what's called a mikvah, a, a, a bath that people do those ritual washings in. There was a mikvah found in um, uh, very close to Carfax a number of uh, uh, years ago because there was a thriving Jewish community until they were all expelled in the 1300s sometime. Um, uh, that, that was central to Jewish rites. And clearly they needed to explain that all the other ones, all these other ritual washings that they knew, were really just shadows of the real one, the real baptism. Baptism uh, that Jesus described in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That baptism required repentance like John the Baptist's baptism but it was a turning to Jesus it was associated with coming to new life given only by God's Holy Spirit it was a sign that they had died to their old life now and would rise to a new one trusting in Jesus looking forward to our eternity with him. So almost certainly it is, in that sense, about baptism. A, that they needed to have foundational teaching. It's quite important, isn't it? In Trinity Church, for instance, we have a commitment to respect those who have slightly different views about baptism. It's, Different people with integrity read the Bible and some feel that baptism should be for only for infants. But we, although we, though we respect that and, and, um, uh, and tolerate that, we teach that it should be upon a person's personal repentance. It should come after God has placed his mark on them by giving them a new heart so that now they come to love God. And want to follow Jesus. Because we believe that is the most natural way of reading the New Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews thinks it's quite important. Quite foundational. Because Christian baptism speaks. It is, it is an outward ritual, an outward action that speaks of what has happened in a person's heart. And we would say, that we, we would want to say, we cannot tell what has happened in the heart of a baby yet, which is why we don't baptize babies. We're looking for evidence of the sovereign work of God in someone's life. It is, for the writer to the Hebrews, a foundational teaching. And the laying on of hands he speaks of. Again, another outward action, uh, this time that uh, is not done that often in the New Testament. Um, when you do see the laying on of hands, it's so often associated with, with, with the gift of God's Spirit. And that would make sense in this context. Make sure that, he says, that the, the outward things that you do, baptizing and laying on of hands, 
symbolize and are associated with these fundamental spiritual truths. On the one hand, we must be born again. God must do a new thing in our lives. Whatever you personally think about baptism, that is a fundamental Christian truth. And on the other hand, we desperately, totally need the work of God's Spirit in our lives, symbolized by laying on of hands here. Because we cannot do anything to turn ourselves to God. He must do it. And then the last pair. Again, back to more straightforward. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It is fundamental, it is a central Christian truth that we don't come to follow Jesus just to feel nice now, just to lead a slightly better life, just to look respectable, just to feel reconciled to God now. The fundamental hope of Christians is found in the resurrection of Jesus, who was raised bodily, physically to life. The extraordinary surprise of the Gospels of the New Testament is that Jesus and we, therefore, don't just sort of continue as floating on clouds or, or little new stars in the sky or any of the sort of popular things that are around now and were around then. But Jesus rose physically from the dead. He said, touch me. He went and and. And, and barbecued by the beach and, and they ate fish together. It is that solid physical resurrection hope that is every Christian's hope. It is extraordinary. It is revolutionary. It is central to the Christian message. It is foundational. And paired with that, eternal judgment, he says. That there is a judgment on the last day. And there is only one question that is asked. And that question is not how many good things did you do, not how wonderful was your life. It is one question. Did you repent? Did you turn around and put your faith in Jesus? Those are the foundational teachings that he um, uh, describes then as he's talking to these Wobbly believers, repentance and faith, baptism and the laying of hands as, as signs of some of those fundamental gospel truths, resurrection and eternal judgment. Get those foundations right, he says, but then build on them. Don't build a life then that sort of acknowledges those foundations, but here is the life that you're building, which is actually on no foundation at all. It'll fall over. But don't actually just be content. You've dug a nice deep trench. You have you've poured some con concrete in it. Doesn't it look wonderful? And, and, and you walk away and you leave it. Those who only have foundations, he's saying, will not survive in the real world. 
if you only have foundations, if you've only drunk milk, then sooner or later something will come along and you'll realise the foundations have gone. There's nothing there. That's the next thing that he says. Build on the foundations, he says. Make sure they're firm and then build on them. Because going back is calamitous. It is impossible for those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. These are some of the most difficult and controversial words in the whole of the New Testament. And I'm, I'm sorry that we have so little time to consider them this morning because they are worth reflecting on, worth thinking about, indeed worth, worth bringing in lots of the rest of the New Testament to, to illustrate them, and we just are not going to have time for that. So let me just, let me, let me just introduce you to what I th- think he is saying. Um, the most difficult thing about this passage is that it says something more just than those who walk away will not be saved. It says that it is impossible for this category of person who falls away to be brought back to repentance. It is shocking and it is very strong. And it is a stern warning to these young believers. Broadly speaking, there are three different ways that people interpret this. One interpretation goes like this. Yes, it is impossible to come back to repentance because it always was and always will be on our own. That's what it means to need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But of course... If the Holy Spirit works again, we can repent again and we will be fine. Well, the problem with that is, frankly, it is difficult to read this passage as if it is only saying that. It seems to be saying something much more significant. It seems to be saying that there is a hardening of the human heart, which means that certain people can never, will never turn back to God. There's a second interpretation then that suggests that if a Christian denies Christ, apostatize is the word that uh, uh, has been used historically, if they apostatize, then they, by definition, they cannot come back to God. They are eternally lost. That is it. There were big debates in the early years of the church because there were waves of persecution and sometimes people, sometimes quite prominent people, denied their faith for a while because they didn't want to die. And um, then when it got calmer again, they would come back very penitent to uh, uh, into the church and want to be welcomed back. And people deliberated and debated about whether they could be welcomed back. Surely they have apostatized. Surely this passage says they never come back. This um, uh, also goes along with the uh, idea 
or, or challenges the idea of what is called the perseverance of the saints. That is that once a person has become a Christian, they will persevere forever. Those God chooses, he does not let go. If that's what elsewhere the Bible says, Philippians 1.6, for instance, says, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. Then what are we to make of these apostates? The third interpretation then has come in that suggests that they were never Christians in the first place. It wasn't that they were genuine Christians and fell away and therefore they can't get come back. They were, they were never Christians in the first place. They may have appeared to be that, but they weren't. Well, they certainly look one, like one, don't they? They have been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Perhaps the best way for us to understand it then is actually a, a modification of that third interpretation to say that it is possible to, to in an initiatory way, show every evidence that you are a Christian. Quite possibly in the mind of God, God knows who are his, he's not surprised, uh, and so on. But actually, in terms of what we see here and now, in an initiatory way, no one could ever say that person is identifiably right now not a Christian. Because it is interesting, for instance, the language is all about initiation. They have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the, uh, of the word of God. The suggestion, the suggestion is then that, that, in fact, if we look carefully at the New Testament, though there are strong statements that those who belong to God will persevere always, there is nevertheless a recognition again and again in the Bible that particularly in earlier phases of someone's Christian life, Not only can we be deceived, but actually we can come so close to these things. So close to, to, to the experience of the Holy Spirit. So close to enjoying the word of God. So, 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 so much have our eyes opened that actually if we turn away at that point, it hardens our hearts in a way that it cannot be reversed. It, it, is, it is, frankly, disconcerting language, worrying language. But actually, Jesus taught something very similar in the parable of the four soils. Do you remember that one uh, seed fell on soil? First of all, it did germinate, and it fell on thin soil. When the, the plants sprung up, but, but the sun beat, persecution came, he says, that's the interpretation of it. And it withered and was no more. Another one grew on the soil, but they, they paid no attention to the weeds growing up and the weeds choked it. Only the fourth seed 
actually bore fruit. And look at the next two verses, verses 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, Hebrews 6 here, often falling on it, produces a crop useful for those for whom its farms receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. He seems to have that parable in his mind as he's speaking. And he's saying, just as Jesus taught that Seeds can spring up, plants can spring up on thin soil. Plants can look good for a while until the weeds choke them out. So I'm saying to you, he says, that there is a state that you can be in that has been in church, that has read the Bible, that has seen all of those things and has begun even to experience them. If that person turns away, then the hardness in their heart is terminal. See why it's been one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the New Testament because it is deeply disconcerting. Particularly in a church like this and many, many people in the early years of their faith. But you see, it fits with what I've seen over the years. A number of people have been on See you execs who 20, 30 years later. They're not only nominal, they would deny that any of it was true. And they would look back on those young years as naive immaturity. This passage would say, oh yeah, that they were naively immature. And the point was, they never built on that foundation. And now they are so hardened, they will not come back. There are sons and daughters of Christian leaders out there in the world who once seemed to be believers and who are now the most vigorous opponents of all that their parents stand for. I, I could tell you the story of a, a man who seemed actually to be more established in the faith than just, you know, the first couple of years of his Christian life and seemed to be doing very, very well. And then his mother died. And in the crisis that followed that, he concluded that all he'd ever been doing was trying to please his mother. He's now a committed atheist in Oxford. Now, there are people who, uh, sadly, have been hardened by their contact with the gospel. And now there is nothing to be done. Now, perhaps you are worried 
about that for yourself. Perhaps you've worried that you have hardened your heart and you come here today with only the faintest glimmer of a hope that there, there could be anything left for you. The phrase that is used very often, and I think uh, uh, is appropriate, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a phrase that Jesus used, and it seems to be the same phenomenon. Jesus warned that those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven. Perhaps you're worried about that. Let me say to you, if you are here and if you want to turn to Christ, you are not in that category. Hebrews twelve seventeen will warn that there are people who seek the place of blessing with tears but cannot receive it. But there are no, there's no one who seeks the place of repentance and does not receive the full offer of God that he welcomes us in. Perhaps you're here not so much worried about that, but worried about your vulnerability to sin and sin and sin again. And you have to ask forgiveness again and again and again. Well, all I can say is join the club. You know, I'm not what I once was and what I might have been as a result of Jesus, but I am certainly not perfect. And this is not saying that any sin disqualifies you or even sins that we find we battle with for years and years and years. If we find in our hearts a genuine regret, a genuine desire for God's forgiveness, a genuine desire to come back to him, then we are normal Christians. And he promises us that he will forgive us not once and again, but again and again, 10,000 times and on. You are not that person who is shut out forever. You may think... What should I do? How should I respond then? And he tells us in verses 9 to 12. There's only one thing to do. Move forward confidently. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. It started, he says, it's the, for the person who is ultimately nowhere with God, it started with laziness. It started with a satisfaction with trivialities that wouldn't hold up in the real world. Little trite sermonettes. 
But what can you can do is be vigorous, be confident, be positive, be in the habit of reading your Bible, be in the habit of responding to God, be in the habit of coming back to him for, to forgiveness, be in the habit of belonging to a local church, be in the habit of being supported and supporting other believers, be in the habit of sharing your faith, be in the habits that are characteristic of a normal Christian and we can move forward confidently. Yes, there is rightly a sense of fear lest we treat things with such triviality that as I say, especially in the early stages of our life, it finally comes out that we are nowhere at all. But it does not need to be paralyzing fear. We can walk confidently forward because those who practice repentance and faith are always, always saved. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. What you hope for will be, verse 11, fully realised. Let me finish by reading the words of a hymn, which I suspect we'll never sing here because it's from a bygone day, but I love it. So I'm going to read it to you. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with God's righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, not all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name on the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, when all earthly ties have been riven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you chastened, that the transactions of our hearts and the things we read are of eternal significance, and Lord, we pray that you will 
preserve us from taking them trivially. We pray for ourselves and each and every one of us here that there will be none of us who becomes hardened but all of us who keep soft hearts, Lord, towards you. We pray for any who have not yet laid those foundations of repentance and faith and the new life and the gift of the Spirit and resurrection promises and eternal judgment. We pray that for any of us who do not have those foundations straight, you would help us to lay them and then to build on them. Pray for any of us here, Lord, who don't yet know you. That you will so turn our hearts that we cannot walk away. We must walk towards you. And we ask, Lord, that we would be people of confidence. Because we know you, the living Lord who loves to have mercy, whose love is unbreakable. Help us to walk forward with confidence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.